Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to cars.com. It's magical. Stunned. Tyrese Halliburton was stunned, Malika. Uh, The league is stunned at this trade. First 10 for three. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Corners podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started today, if you have not already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. We always want to hear from you and get your feedback. Uh, I am really excited to be joined by my good good friend, co-host, and colleague, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Do you, I mean, we're doing another draft pod. I've already given it away. But do you think that with who we've selected today that we're flying too close to the sun the night before the Icarus-y. NBA draft lottery? Yes. This is a, this is this is Icarus, Mark, and Caitlin uh, draft night here. Um, it's not draft night, but you you know what I mean. We are we're very much so uh, playing this one close. So. Yes, obviously, uh, like this will coming out tomorrow. This will be out in the morning. Um, the draft lottery is this evening. I believe it's seven. It's normally at seven. Um, so we'll find out where the Pacers finally do select. But today we're going to talk about Jabari Smith, who is a really interesting prospect uh, to look at through a lot of lenses. Um, it's going to be just you and me today because partially we were ready to take the training wheels off, but also um, my friend who was going to come on today had to cancel because he ended up having a last minute thing pop up. But uh, we move. Caitlin, I guess the first thing I should ask you, what uh, what is your overall th- overall takeaway is the wrong way to put it, but like come I guess going into these games before you watch them, what were your what was kind of your thought process here based off things that you'd heard or uh, or maybe seen? To be honest, I'm trying not to hear or see as much yeah. as I possibly can. And as you know, like I didn't really watch much of the college basketball season during the actual college basketball season. And I did not watch Auburn and the tournament. I watched some of the tournament games, but I didn't watch Auburn play. So I didn't have much, uh, I guess I should say, bias heading into it. And um, by the last three games, which I should point out which ones we watched, we watched them play Miami. We watched them play Alabama. We watched them play Texas A&M. And in particular, which we'll get into, I wanted to watch the Miami game because on the prior pod with a uh, talking about AJ Griffin, which if people haven't heard, can go listen to, we also watched Duke play Miami. So once I was familiar with Miami's defensive scheme, I particularly wanted to see the difference between how they defended Jabari Smith versus Bancaro and how each of the two of them responded to that coverage. So I think that was kind of my main takeaway that we'll head into when we get into the format here. Yes, and that they handled it very differently. I think it's a great way to put it. Also, I just I have to shout out, I love Jordan Miller. Jordan Miller was Jabari Smith's primary defensive uh defensive uh was his primary defensive uh Jesus, why can I not speak today? <laughs> defensive matchup. Jeez, okay, there that's close enough. Um, and he was just like white on rice in this, uh, this game, like just glued to him a uh, very fun player to watch overall. Somebody I'm excited about for the draft next year, but that's neither here nor there. Um, Caitlin, I guess I'll, I'll start it with you. I started last time. So I'm gonna make you start off today. Do you want to start stock up or stock down? Yeah. Just to give everybody a background. Oh, yes. If you haven't listened to the prior three, which so far we've covered Jaden Ivey, Keegan Murray and AJ Griffin. Um, our format is that we're watching these three games. We've both watched them in entirety. And then we pick something that we're more bearish about and something that we're more bullish about. In the prior episodes, we were able to have a guess, but today I'm just going to have Mark tell me how wrong my takes are and vice versa. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll head into the stock, the stock up. And 
I was surprised with what end of the floor I picked for the stock up, Mark, because I did not pick the offensive end. I, I actually am, picked the defensive end. So you're telling me that you picked exactly what I chose, probably. What did you give me? Give me what you chose. It's from the Alabama game. Okay, so you probably picked something that I chose. But yeah, go ahead. That's fine. That's fine. I mean, I don't mind if we both have the same thought. Mm-hmm. We can be an echo chamber. But <laughs> we already are. So, you know. But um, so I wanted to point this one out because what I've titled my stock up for, if people want to read our posts in addition to listening to this podcast, is I'm very impressed by how disciplined he is. Yes. Um, only just now turned 19 on, I believe, last Friday. So 18 when this occurred. And he got three different stops on switches against three different Alabama guards. But in this case, he's defending, I would say, arguably the burst years one of the three um, in the first half with about 12 minutes left to go. And he gets the switch and the guard backs up like you would. Like imagine what Victor Oladipo used to do against the switch, backing up as if there's like a hypothetical four-point line to attack, either rise up into a shot or, you know, get that defender off balance. That's the reason that you do that. So Jabari, this is why I think it's so impressive and disciplined of him because he stays on balance that whole time and backpedals until he recognizes that, okay, this is the precise moment that the guard is actually going to drive. When the guard hits the B button is when he then flips his hips. He flips his hips, cuts him off, cuts the guard off in the paint. And on that gather, it's very easy for bigs to foul in that situation. But he stays down, doesn't leave his feet. The guard goes into a turnaround. He sits on the jump shot and blocks it. And what I'm about to say next, before I have you react to that, I don't want people to interpret this as IJAX slander. I really oh, don't. No. Because because I, I've i included it in the post just to show as a comparison because IJAX is also a very young big. And I think some of the mistakes that we see him make are the norm. It's normal. Both of these players both move very well on the perimeter, but the difference here and what you're going to see is what I said about the hip flip. That a lot of times when Isaiah Jackson immediately makes a, a switch or the guard backs up, he will already open his stance before that guard has even attacked. Like, I mean, we can remember pretty vividly the clip where for whatever reason, at the end of the season against the 76ers, James Harden gets him on a switch and he immediately opens up and shades him to the left when Danny Green is in the ball side corner. Like, I I don't know why you would be funneling James Harden to his left period, let alone into TJ McConnell as a help defender. And he kind of makes that little mistake fairly often. And it's not me being low on Isaiah Jackson or saying that, you know, he doesn't move well. It's just me pointing out that like Jabari already having these types of instincts makes me think well of him in addition to his ability to slide his feet. Yeah, no, I think those are such great points. Um, he is such an like, uh, this is something we'll probably talk about throughout the podcast. He is a really interesting case of talking about what athleticism is and yeah. like functionality of it. Um, because it would be wrong to say that he's not athletic, but like he is, and this will something that we'll talk about a lot on offense, but like he's a very stiff athlete in some regards. But then, like, like you're mentioning defensively, um, I will, how do you feel about okay? So, I think like going laterally, he is really good at that, in my opinion, especially for his size. Like, he's um, like so good at like he's 6'10 and he makes you know that he's 6'10, which is something that I really appreciate because there are a lot of guys who like don't quite have the same ability to to play out as aggressively on like a, a switch heavy scheme like Auburn played. Um, how do you feel about him changing directions though with his hips? And the Alabama game, I thought was pretty superb, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many times where he keeps his body in between the ball and the basket. This one in particular, um, there's another case in the second half where, again, you know, he waits for the exact moment when the guard's going to attack. And then rather than that guard getting a straight line drive, he diverts them baseline, is able to tap it away. Um, I think that there's sometimes where he's going to make some mistakes, but mm-hmm. in a way that's comparable for the Pacers, he had a rim protector behind him. So yeah. if Miles Turner's on the roster, we have a pretty good sense of what that would look like. Yeah, exactly. And I think that you you hit exactly what I want to hit on. Like what's kind of remarkable about him for, to me too, because I agree. I think he's good at changing directions with his hips. Uh, there are some moments where he just doesn't always take the proper first step. Um, so it looks like he gets beat because he, he just isn't good at changing directions. But I think like, as good as he is on the perimeter, like there's even that much more room for him to grow, like footwork wise and just improving his technique, even though he's already good with it. And like you mentioned, I think the um, his ability to not foul people on the perimeter is impressive, like especially for his size. Um, 
I, I always come away with that watching him play. Cause I think I watched him at least 14 or 15 times this year. Cause he was like somebody very quickly. I was like, I need to watch as much of him this year as possible. He only averaged two fouls a game. Like that's not, again, that's not everything, but um, again, somebody, I, 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 I love that you hit on that because that's, I mean, that can flow right into my stock down. I mean, stock down, not stock down. Jesus. <laughs> I'm, I'm on a roll today with, with speaking. Um, this is much later than we normally record. record that is true. This it is about seven, off our 720 game. right now. I've been on my computer since like eight o'clock this morning. So I am, uh, this is my last thing to do today. So, but I saved the best for last. So yes. Um, my, it's kind of like a multitude of things, but I'll take just the possession right here. As much as there was not a lot of awesome stuff to take away from the Miami game, I thought defensively he played pretty well in the Miami game. Um, and right here, this is a he's guarding Isaiah Wong, who absolutely torched Auburn in this game. Um, but it's on a switch, uh, about a minute and a half left in the first quarter. Uh, you see him changes up his hips. It's kind of like in a he's almost playing like. It's not a drop, but it is. Well, it's close to a drop. It's like playing center field almost, but he takes a quick back pedal. Isaiah Wong goes into a step back. Jabari comes all the way out up to him and meets him on the perimeter, which is like, obviously, like, of course you're going to. But I think one of the things you hit on, the way that he times things is really good. Like, if he just takes one wrong step, that's a wide open layup. But he comes right up. He doesn't open his hips up. You see him chop his feet. He's really good at keeping his arms moving. He always has an arm out uh, to just kind of deter Wong for picking up the ball. Um, so finally, after Wong's like third counter, he's going up and trying to take a contest to the layup, and Jabari sends it back. And I'm like, how many players are doing that on the Pacers in the last two or three years? How many players are doing that period in the NBA right now? Yeah. Um, Evan Mobley? Um, yeah, because – I mean, I'm giving it away, but I actually included that GIF slightly in my section. Uh -huh. So we're going to have it twice for a different reason that I want to bring up and, and bounce off of you because they did about said Duke. I was thinking of the Duke Miami game, but Auburn cross matched this. Yeah. So they put Jabari on Miami stretch five and put their own rim protector um, on Miller around the dunker spot in that possession so that they could switch those pick and rolls so that they weren't putting Miller out into space. So if you think about that in a Pacers context, um, some this season, we can look, we can look back at matchups, not in games when miles wasn't playing whenever he was injured. Like when they played the bulls, I remember vividly like Ronald Norad um, toward the end of the game, motioning over to the bench or out to the court and telling him, Hey, put O'Shea on Vucevic. We're going to put Sabonis over on the lower usage wing. That way we can switch those pick and pops so we're not putting the defense into rotation and also switch on to DeMar DeRozan. Um, they did that with Keelan Martin against the Jazz, putting mm -hmm. him on uh, Rudy Gobert. And then they did that with Justin Holiday against Kristaps Porzingis when Kristaps was still with the Mavericks. So it's clear to me that the Pacers are amenable to doing that type of cross-matching. And this isn't something you clearly couldn't have done with like Miles and Sabonis. Like you're not, I mean, they tried to have Sabonis switch at times when I didn't really completely understand it. But in this sense, like if you had a Miles Turner, Jabari Smith front court and you're playing a team, you know, that has a stretch shooting five out there, then you could put him on the ball and you could switch everything one through four and keep Miles closer to the paint. Now it would be dependent on the specific matchup, but it does give you flexibility to keep. Um, your your rim protector at the rim. So I kind of want to just bouncing off of that, like thinking about Jabari, Miles, and Isaiah Jackson, like defensively, what do you think about those various combinations? Um, I think what's interesting is that you could theoretically, and that's offense is a whole other thing, but theoretically defensively, like you could play the three of them together, which is like, that's incredibly tantalizing to me because I think um, – would you do you consider Jabari a big like I think he's a front court player but I view him more as personally like I would view him more as a three four than as a four five yeah I mean I don't think I would be playing him at center in the NBA yeah. currently yeah okay so cool we're on the same boat with that but yeah like I think like I'm, like if let's say if Jabari is out there defending a three like I'm not yeah like I, I could totally see that like him and and, and Ajax both playing out there finding uh a way to play with miles. Like you don't even have to find a way. Like obviously, yes, Ajax has to rate in some things defensively as we've talked about, but I mean, that's like the most versatile front court defensively the Pacers would have ever had. 
am I wrong in saying that? Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about like even just any two of them out on the court that yeah. the benefit that you would have is to me that each of them would be doing less of where they're least comfortable. Yeah. Like you wouldn't have to have as much as of miles defending in space, potentially. I mean, against certain small ball lineups, it, it's going to be what it is. I mean, we all saw Brooke Lopez guarding um, Grant Williams yesterday mm-hmm. in game seven, but guarding um, in italics or not italics, yes so. yeah <laughs> yes yes helping off to to protect the rim and getting more than they bargained for i guess is the way i should term it what a wild game <laughs> but um also like with jabari like he's not going to have to protect the rim and he's not going to be like with his off ball coverages i think is probably the area where he struggles the most at by my eye mm-hmm. from no, what I i've agree. seen so um he's not going to have to have as many trouble poking his nose where it doesn't belong necessarily and then Conversely, like with Ajax, I'm still kind of on the train of thought with him that defensively with either one of them, I'd like to see him kind of in the rover role where you're, you know, guarding a lower usage wing in the corner and being able to roam sideline to sideline because he does move so well. And then that would help him not rack up as many fouls. It's kind of like, you know, the point I made, I don't remember how many podcasts ago about like, I understood why the Grizzlies weren't playing Steven Adams against the Timberwolves, but the drawback of not playing Steven Adams against the Timberwolves was that Jaron Jackson had to play full-time at the five and that his foul rate was back up without having the center out there. So I think that you would have quite a bit of flexibility defensively um, between the three of them, but you know, there's always the case that, you know, you get into a playoff scenario where, you know, they might be wanting to call miles up into the action as we've been seeing so many bigs getting hunted. And then, you know, your scheme isn't exactly the same, but that's something to think about a long ways down the road. So, um, yeah, my general stock up was just me being impressed by his discipline as a 19 year old defending. Yeah, no, I'm Seems right like we're you. on the same page with that one. Yeah, no, 100%. And like you mentioned with the off-ball stuff, that's a that's a good thing to bring up because I felt like he tries to do some good things, but like it's, some of it is like like he, he there were a lot of times with him like helping off strong side corner. And um, like I will say too, like uh, from watching Auburn play a lot this year, I think chaos is like the best way to explain a lot of what they did on both ends. Um, that, that's just, that's more, that's a personal opinion for me. You don't have to agree with that one, but like there was a lot of, uh, like there, that's a lot of how the roster was kind of constructed, in my opinion. And like you, you could see it play out sometimes. But yeah, I agree. Like honing in some of the things he does off ball would be interesting. How did you feel about him as a protect? Jeez, uh, as a rim protector or playing as a low man? Um, uh, not <laughs> not very positively. I mean, at this stage, yeah. And again, he's super young. I think that's something that would take more time, but. Um, I anticipate that that wouldn't be a major area of concern if the Pacers intend on keeping miles. So, yeah, no, that was something I wanted to ask just because, uh, it is like, I don't know. I don't really care as much about, like, I think sometimes it gets overdone. Can you play the five? Like, I don't, if you're good at doing what you do at at the three or four and I mean, if they played a minutes at solo five, I'm pretty confident they would just do what they've been doing the last, they would just be switching everything anyways. Yeah. So then you're, I mean. To your point, though, then then their help defense would become more important in making rotations in case people do get beat. But definitely, yeah, it's uh, something that I would want to see. Like I, I think my point is like, especially in the Alabama game, um, and he had some games throughout the year where, like, just just to give some context, like earlier in the year, there was like very little of him, um, as a as a rim protector. Like he had some blocks, but it was mostly like blocking jump shots or just like, you know, a random like help side thing. But he showed like in the Alabama game, he had a couple, uh possessions where it really like you're like oh okay there's like some of the help side stuff and again it wasn't consistent this year but it's like like you mentioned he's just turned 19 something that'll be interesting to track as he as he develops for sure um is there anything else you want to hit on defensively before we move on to stock up stock down i mean just to stock down no i think we're good but i do want to have a little interim because i did prepare a game that i forgot about until just now um we've done four of these podcasts this is the fourth one. I've done Jaden Ivey and Keegan Murray and AJ Griffin and today Jabari. Um, before we get into the stock downs, I just want to ask you, among those four, who do you think made the most deep threes last season between 25 and 29 feet? Or how would you rank them? Out of who all they would do again? Jaden Ivey, Keegan Murray, AJ Griffin, and Jabari Smith. Who do you think made the most deep threes? I think it was Jabari. And I, no, no, wait. It was probably Jaden because Jaden took some deep ones. Yeah. 
Jaden Ivey made 40 deep threes and took 60% of his threes from between 25 and 29 feet. So he took a lot of deep threes, shot 36% on those. I bring this up because I find it, it, it interesting at the context of what I think we most people would probably assume because Jabari is second in um, makes as well as his percentage of attempts made 34 um, attempted 42% of his deep threes. Keegan Murray made 31 and attempted 34% of his deep threes. And AJ Griffin only made 10 and shot, um, attempted only 22% of his 155 threes as deep threes and only shot 28% on the deep threes. So um, that was interesting to me, but I'll go ahead and go to my stock down, which I didn't exactly know how to term this and summarize it, but it's a little bit of a cheat because it's kind of a three part story. Um, it's I'm calling it putting opposing defenses in rotation. Yeah. So like, we know what he can do as a shooter. Like I, I don't think that there's very re- uh, much reason to question that his shooting is translatable. Would you agree with that? I mean, don't, yeah, like no, not at all. Like yeah. he's so, off the dribble, off the catch, off movement. Yeah. It's, it's there. Yeah. 40% from three as a freshman including the 43% on deep threes. And like you said, like it wasn't just him. Like when you mentioned shooting off the screens, like it wasn't just him doing like, and again, I don't want this to be slanderous, but like miles logged some possessions off screens this year, but that was like, they ran a couple, like they called their sideline out of bounds play line. And it was like Sabonis stepping in and then he would kind of pop out and that was off a screen or like him standing in the corner and getting a corner pin in like, or maybe a flare. Like it wasn't generally him moving around off screen plays. Like you will literally see Jabari going around a pin down as a six ten person, like what you would see, like sometimes Carl Anthony Towns or even, you know, strangely enough, Jonas Valanciunas did some of that this year as well. But with the shooting, I now have another number to share for the podcast. <laughs> per synergy, Jabari Smith attempted is this a two point percentage. No, oh, okay. not, not quite. Okay. I'm getting um, yeah. I'm just uh, I'm bracing. Yeah. So he attempted sixty five percent of his shots in the half court as jump shots, and that's not including post ups, which synergy tracks separately. But if we're being honest, most of his post ups are also jump shots. Mm-hmm. So like just as frame of reference. Miles Turner, who I think most people see on the offensive end mainly as a shoot as a jump shooter or a spot up option, has never um, posted that high of a frequency and taken like I don't want to say one dimensional, but taken that many of his shots as jumpers. So like not at Texas, his highest number with the Pacers is fifty six percent, which was during the twenty seventeen eighteen season when he was like constantly running mid range pick and pop with Darren Collison. The only players in the NBA this season, period, who attempted 65% of their shots in the half court as jump shots were Davis Bertans, Mike Muscala, Danilo Gallinari, and Kevin Durant. And, like, just by comparison, like, Jabari does not have Kevin Durant's handle. Like, I don't that, – that's not really a thing at this point in time. So, those numbers, then when you look at it – so, my actual stock down, like I said, is putting opposing defenses into rotation, and I – think that this shows up quite a bit in the Miami game because the first play that I want to bring up is that Auburn ran the exact same action, didn't use it the same, but the same action that Nate Bjorken ran for Sabonis and that the Raptors ran for Pascal Siakam, where the guard goes, dribbles in front of the big and pitches it backward for that big to get downhill with their mm-hmm. yeah, strong so hand. Exactly. Right. So Sabonis would do that fairly often. And then sometimes as the season went on, they started having the corner man um, step up and screen at the elbow. And then it became like inverted elbow pick and roll. So here against Miami, he gets that action. The guard dribbles in front of Jabari. And a lot of times Jabari will use that as, as a pull-up too, rather than Sabonis to get downhill or Siakam to get downhill. He has that elbow screen there that he could use. Like there's a clear crevice where if he wanted to put the ball on the floor, he could, the defender's leaning. And instead he takes like the contested shot, which we know he's good at making contested shots. But the point being is like, he's not going to dribble past the free throw line and take multiple dribbles in that situation. And that's pretty clear. So that's point number one. Point number two is what you referenced before Jordan Miller guarding him in this game. And he's running flex action and Jordan Miller's able to push his pickup point outside the lane. And then like Jabari has all these turnarounds and spinning turnarounds and a shimmy, like he has all that in his bag, but um, 
the Miami does not come to double. That's just, mm-hmm. you know, I turn around and it's just the one shot. And then the third play that I want to share is that um, by contrast to the way that Miami defended Duke, which Duke was running the double ball screens, um, horns, corner, double a lot. And that was allowing Bancaro. He was the second screener. So they'd trap the first screen because Miami runs a ball screen trapping defense. Bancaro would get it as the second screener and then he could attack and make a pass on the move. By contrast, when Jabari was the screener against Miami, they were not trapping those screens. They were switching them. And then because they didn't want to have to put the defense into rotation with him slipping or getting action in the pop. They didn't want to have to pull over from the weak side. So they were just switching it. So he gets a switch against a guard. Who's probably, I don't know, a foot and a half shorter than him. Mm -hmm. And instead of running to the ball side block and immediately posting, he runs to the weak side and just stands there. And then they just scram it out. So like my main point is, I don't know, like just looking at those three clips alone, how, in your opinion, is he going to put opposing defenses into rotation? That's the thing. I don't, and I, I think this is what's so tough. Like, I don't think either of us are meaning to sound harsh, but to me, I no. don't think that he's somebody who is going to put defenses into rotation as a primary option or even like, I mean, like, I think his shooting is going to be enough where he's going to have to be run off the line. But again, like he, like you mentioned, like, that's going to be part of my stock down. Like the handle is in a place where he can struggle to even attack closeout sometimes right now. Like, yeah, I mean, it's going to be a pull up too. Yeah. Mainly. So, I mean, yeah, we're kind of in the same boat. Like, he's not really – I don't want to say he doesn't impact the defense, but if the shot's not falling, like, it's kind of just – like like we've talked about with Miles this year. Yeah, because can I tell you what I thought of when I brought up that play with Jordan Miller pushing his pickup point? Yes. And I tweeted it so people have seen it. I do it. remember. And it, it, yeah, I, I thought it, it was a genius comparison, actually. The entire time, because of the way Miami was defending him, it reminded me so much of watching the Mavs Clipper series during Rick's final season in Dallas, because that's what the Clippers were doing. Like they also did not want to blitz Luca when Przingis was the screener. They switched it because they didn't want to have to, you know, stun over when he was going to pop. And they didn't want him to be able to slip into space because Porzingis actually, you know, does slip pretty well. So they would switch it and then he would get like a post up at the right elbow. And again, like both of them have ridiculously high releases when you're six foot 10 and you have a really high launching point and you can also pull from deep, which both of them shoot a high percentage. Like I said, during our little interim game, shoot a high percentage of their shots, not only from three, but as deep threes, like he's going to be able to get his shot off pretty much no matter what. That's not the question. But the point being is that I have a, the clip of Porzingis here. Like he has the switch against Terrence Mann in that series. He's at the elbow and Terrence Mann's able to sit on the jump shot because you know that he's not going to put the, like he's not going to get rolling downhill. Just like Jordan Miller knows, like Jabari is not going to get rolling downhill toward the basket. He might take a jab step. He might take one dribble. He's not going to face up and take multiple dribbles to get to the rim most likely. So neither team brought a double. And that's how you're going to put the, that's how you're going to put opposing teams into rotation. Like Miami did double him a few times in this game. Cause I mean, another aspect of this is that like, to put it nicely, like Auburn's guards were really frustrating to me yeah, to watch yes, them in terms of me, their, not alone in, their in terms of their reads and their shooting. So it was easy, like in the sense that you had incentive to come off of their guards, to go double him in certain circumstances, because they didn't have other secondary spot up shooting options. Like he was their best shooter. But, you know, the Mavs were like, okay, you have Marcus Morris on a switch. You have Paul George on a switch. You have six foot five Terrence Mann on a switch. Like, we're not, we're not going to come double that. So by the end of the series, if you remember, like Rick Carlisle put Porzingis in the corner and used him as a cutter and they were playing Boban because in difference, like the Clippers would blitz Luca when Boban was the screener. And also when Boban was on the block, they were bringing people. So they were bringing doubles and Boban could post out of it or pass out of it a little bit. So um, that was definitely heavy on my mind, particularly because we have a pretty good reference point of how Rick Carlisle uses those types of players in those situations. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, You are speaking words that I have thought about a lot. Yeah, it is. uh, And especially bringing up that just that series comparison is a great point. Um, 
Do you want to know what Jabari Smith shot on twos um, in from February onwards? So it's a 13 game stretch. Oh dear. I know that he attempted just at, just like looking at his twos, only 21% of his twos came at the rim, but I do not know what his conversion rate is. I'm kind of afraid to hear. Uh, it was well. So on the season, uh, I'll, I'll tell you on the season in just a second, but this stretch. So from February to, uh, so February is their last game against Alabama all the way through the Miami game. He shot 39.4% on seven and a half attempts per game from two. Um, granted, a lot of those are, um, are, are jumpers, but also like, that's kind of the point. Like a lot of them are jumpers. Like, and this is, again, this is, I think this one's so tough. Uh, and this is actually, this was probably the toughest one to not have a guess for now that I think about it retrospect. Um, but like, it just stands to reason, like he really does struggle to get to the rim. And it's, I, I do like, I think I struggled with this one a lot this year, especially watching him early on. Um, and all the way throughout, like I've seen a lot of arguments like, Oh, you know, he's just trying to show off his jumper for the league. And it's, I think that Texas A&M game that we picked out is a great example. The entire game, literally, like, uh, except for, I think I counted maybe one or two possessions. They shade his right hand the entire game because they know he can't dribble left. Like, Oh, I and the he, one time when he dribbles left, when they hard close out turnover. to him on his right, it looked, it kind of reminded me of like the scene in Bambi when Bambi's oh on the gosh. ice. Yeah. Yes. That is a, that is very fair. Um, and again, that's not trying to be unfair to him, but it's just like, that's where he is right now. Like that, that, that is my stock down is his handle because as good as the shooting is, um, and to give him credit, like there are like he, his, uh, one of the things that was really cool to watch him this year is he got really good as a grifter, which I always appreciate in scores. Like, um, yeah. he picked up fouls, like a monster, uh, in, in sec play, like really picked up his foul rate. And a lot of that was off rip throughs. Um, which I think that's something he's going to get a lot in the NBA. I don't think he's going to get it the same way, especially like, like we've talked about, like this stuff is going to look different, but I do think that was a nice thing. But um, even on the plays where he does get downhill, you see some of the issues um, attacking at the rim. Like he really needs to load up to get, uh, to get, to get a lot of pop around the rim. Like there was another play that will be in my stock down. Like, um, and it's in the Miami game. He is uh, spaced out to the to the dunker spot on the weak side early in the second half. Um, Wendell Green is about to go for a shot. Uh, so, like, two Miami defenders inexplicably close out on him. Jabari is wide open in the dunker spot. Wendell Green uh, kicks the ball ahead. Jabari gets it. He has to bring the ball down first. Sam Wardenberg closes from the other dunker spot. Blocks him at the apex. Jabari gets the ball, has to go down with it again takes a pound dribble, and then he wraps it to the other dunker spot. And honestly, Walker Kessler shouldn't miss the shot. He just had a really rough game, if we're being honest. But I think you see just a lot in there. Like, I do have questions about his verticality off the front foot. Um, like, I, I think he should – like, I'm not trying to say that he can't jump, but it's just like there is some some definite questions about, like, the being able to bring up the ball while also – like, because I think, like, there are times, like, even, like, pulling in from the Alabama game – he did have a decent drive off of a DHO, but he tries to bring the ball up and loses it. Um, I, I felt like that was like something that did just kind of appear throughout the year. So it's going to be like trying to figure out more on drives, but you also see some of the uh, saying tunnel vision is unfair, but like, I just don't know that he sees some of these passes that often. And again, like when we're talking about somebody who is this level of prospect, like he is very, very good. But when you, like when you're dedicating, like, okay, let's, Obviously, he's not Kevin Durant, but if you're getting like 24, 25% usage out of somebody like this, that it does really bring up a lot of questions of what does the playmaking look like? How does that look for an offense? Um, I don't know. Are you, is this kind of ringing true with you at all? Yeah, because I think you bring up a good point there because there was one play, I believe it was in the Texas A&M game, or maybe it was in one, because I ended up watching a couple other games just to like, mm-hmm. have a bigger sample. That, like he, again, he saw some doubles against certain opponents. If he's getting hot, he was going to draw it. Plus, like I said, there was reason to smash down from the guards because they weren't as much of a threat to shoot. And if you plug him in on the Pacers, you would think that, you know, teams are probably going to stay home more on Tyrese or Buddy Heald or Chris and those situations, which offers him more spacing. But again, isn't like 
those types of turnaround elbow jumpers aren't necessarily going to put opponents into rotation unless you're just like, you know, on one. But in the instances, the sample that we do have where he's in the post and he sees a double and makes a pass, it reminds me a little bit of Miles on the short roll. Mm. And that like, there's times where Miles makes the correct read out of that. But to me, like a lot of times when he's on the catch and he's like, putting his head on the swivel to, to, to pivot around, he's already decided in his head that the low man is coming and that he's going to throw it there without having actually glanced to see like, is the rotation coming? Like, are they coming closer to me? And a lot of times that can pan out because that might be what the rotation is, but sometimes you can tell that he's already just flinged it before he's actually, you know, scanned and read the floor. And the case of Jabari, it can be kind of like that in the post. Like there's one occasion where he actually does put the ball on the floor and goes to a spin move. The help comes and he's so trained to use a two-handed pass to the opposite wing. Like that's the spot he's just automatically going to find that he just flings it over there. And it's like, where was that pass even going to? Like that's not even where the teammate was loaded. So it is kind of a two-pronged issue because like if you watch that possession, like his own teammate, who did the post entry pass did not help the spacing at all. Like you got to pull over um, into over into the corner so that he can make an easy kick out. And so it spaces out the other defenders and that didn't happen at the NBA level. You would think that it happened, but still that didn't impact his read. It didn't impact that, you know, what his feel is and what he was already um, looking to do. Yes, exactly. I think that's a great way to put it. And I like, again, in fairness, like, this, this Auburn team was high on talent, but not like the most high on field, just in general. Um, like that, that was a, that yeah, was a thing that, that popped up. That was abundantly year. clear. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, because in the Texas A&M game, like, sorry to interrupt, but like they're switching most of the off ball screens involving him, even to the point of like putting guards on off ball screens. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes like the end of the, you know, the Mavs Clippers series where Porzingis is getting put in the corner and they're using him to cut, you know, with Boban more in the middle of the floor that they're using just Jabari then as like a floor spacer where the guards can get in an attack and the guard draws to help clear off of him at the nail. And like, that's an easy pass. Like, you know, that Tyrese is going to make that pass. Mm-hmm. Like that's a shot that Jabari is going to get. And if you can make it, then like, you know, tremendous because there's no way that guard closing out is going to bother again, it's a high release. It's not going to bother his shot, but at the same time, like, it's kind of clear that you can scheme him out a little bit against the switches, yeah. which, I mean, I think that we can get into that too. when we look at the other roster things, but I interrupted you. So what were you going to no, say? No, you're good. I mean, like there's a play that I thought was just the most telling of who he, where he's at as a passer right now. Like in that Miami, I think most people would write this off as like, Oh, it's just like a, you know, it happens. It was a rough game, but it's about the seven thirty six mark off of a live rebound. Javar actually has a really nice play around the rim to force Cam Mugusti to miss. He gets the ball. He looks to his left, has two hands on the ball. Wendell Green and Katie Johnson are both right there. He takes, uh, goes to his right, takes one dribble up court, looks back to his left, and throws the ball to Wendell Green, but actually throws the ball right to Cam Mugusti, who goes and finishes uh, a layup right in front of him. Like, that's the kind of thing where, like, you can see watching that, like, that I mean, again, like that's very telling of like what his playmaking vision is, is like right now. This is advertiser content brought to you by Frito-Lay. Hello, I'm Chip Murphy here to get you ready for the big tournament. Tonight we'll break down. We break down who will be cutting. Cut. What are you two doing? Sorry, Chip. Prez here got his feathers ruffled when I told him Ruffles has zero chance of winning the title. And I was letting Dip know that she is not taking into account Ruffles' iconic ridges. Guys, it's March. We have to start talking about the tournament. We are. It is the 2023 Frito-Lay Snackin'. We're talking about big-time matchups between Cheetos, Smart Food, Lay's, Sun Chips, and more. Just head to the Frito-Lay Snack Bracket and vote for your favorite chip, pretzel, or dip for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. This sounds great. Keep up the good work. Just go to frito No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends 4-3-2023. Void wherever hit Here's worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at frito
Exactly. And then, I mean, you mentioned it a little bit off top that I want to get into too, because you saying his athleticism and the differences at both ends of the floor, like what he does athletically as a defender feels very different than what he does athletically offensively. Like when you watch him sit in a stance and slide, he's bending at his hips. And when he's trying to go into his dribble moves, it feels to me like he's bending at his back. It's kind of like when you're watching, um, Brooke Lopez, sometimes in a drop in particular, I didn't notice it as much this year in the playoffs, but last mm-hmm. year in the playoffs, how much he hunches over in his stance rather than, you know, sitting more in the stance and how hard doing that can make it for you to move laterally. Yeah. So then he has like, because Jabari's doing that, it feels to me that he has to dribble very wide, which is making his handle maybe look a little looser than in reality it would be. But like, I'm not a biomechanics expert. This mm-hmm. is probably where it would have been good to have one of our guests on who maybe has a little bit more insight into that. But it, it feels a little bit, like you said, like he's a stiff driver, but it, it feels a little bit contradictory between both ends of the floor of where he's able to bend his body. Yeah, well, I think it's uh, it's tough because it feels like saying I wouldn't necessarily say that he's flexible east west, but like like you mentioned, he's really good at just like using his full length and 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 going laterally. But going north south, like just one of the best ways to look at this, like something that PD and I talk about a lot, is shin angle, like for generating power on on drives. Like if you watch Jabari, like I have I have this clip and I'll have it in the in the um in the dock but like when he goes on a drive his legs are making like 60 degree angles which like i'm not trying to say that that's everything but just for reference like trey man who plays for the oklahoma city thunder had like one of the like prototypical this is ridiculous power generation his shins get parallel with the floor on drives so like again you're talking about very different like players in terms of what they're doing but also i do think like you can see on drives like oh wow okay yes even if it's not even that I think is it's not that his handle is necessarily terrible. Like he honestly rips some very good combos off in his self-created jumpers too, especially like, I don't think you saw them as much in these three games, but some of the other games, he creates some pretty ridiculous, you know, two to three dribble combinations into, you know, behind the backs between the legs into a, into a pull-up three. But I think there's just so much of an issue with a, like you mentioned, his dribble is pretty loose, but also, He's just not creating a lot of separation getting downhill. And it almost feels like his body's just not fully in sync with where the ball is, um, which, I mean, that can flow into another thing, but would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I just don't think that he he's, like I said, it's, I think it's a part kind of a disconnect between bending at your back and bending at mm-hmm. your hips in order to get, you know, crouch. Like you can watch Jimmy Butler and I'm not expecting Jabari to be Jimmy Butler, but J- Jimmy Butler kind of, automatically exist in a crouch state both on both ends of the floor so he's able to get low and despite not being really bursty on a closeout he's able to get low and opponents do not undercut him Jabari gets undercut on most of his drives like if it's going to be a closeout that's why it's better off right now for him to just to go ahead and, and hit the pull-up too because he you know for a lot of the season he was hitting it at a decent rate but like you can see the one time he, he has a closeout at the wing and drives out of the closeout and he literally goes to the free throw line like, and then he just makes the pass out of it. Like there's no curve um, to get past at all because people are just able to, to undercut um, how high his hips are. So. Yep. No, 100%. Um, gosh, where do you want to go next with this? Cause I, and I, I, I mean, we definitely have some more positives to hit on. This is not meant as like a doom and gloom pod, but like, no, yeah, no. I mean, like I said, I, I think that, I think the best thing that you can say about him is that I, don't think he's going to fail in the NBA. Like, I think that the stuff that he does are very bankable skills that we can see are important at the NBA level. Like, I don't think that there's much chance that his shooting isn't going to translate or that switching, being able to switch out isn't valuable. It's just a question of like, in part, finding out where the Pacers are selecting in the NBA draft lottery and kind of important. I mean, I guess this is kind of where we can head into is relating this back to the Pacers a little bit more is that, like, let's just envision Tyrese out there. And like, let's say your lineup is Tyrese and I'm kind of operating on the assumption and maybe it's not right of me to, but I'm kind of operating on the assumption that Malcolm Brogdon may or will not be back on the roster next year. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's seeming that way. Yeah. So if it's Tyrese and Chris and like, let's say buddy's back and you have Jabari and miles Turner, 
um, just generally thinking, what is your thought on that type of a lineup combination? Um, I hope that Tyrese is really getting downhill all the time. And that's kind of the point, right? Yeah. So all four of those people um, source the majority of their offense on spot-up opportunities. And when you look at synergy on their spot-up attempts, here's how often the other four got to the rim out of their spot-ups. Duarte was 14.9% getting to the rim like if he sees a closeout on a spot-up. Jabari was 11%. Um, Buddy Heald was 12.5%. And Miles of all of them was actually the highest at 20%, which is still very low. So I think that what you'd have to be banking on if you were – like you'd have to be seeing – you'd have to believe in what Buddy's secondary skills were at the back end of last year and feel really Mm -hmm. good about them. You'd have to believe in what Duarte did in unassisted field goal attempts. And I think you'd have to believe in Miles' shot and his ability that if Tyrese gets blitzed or if there is a switching situation that he's going to be able to do more um, against it. And that one of them is going to be able to make passes. Because otherwise, like, it's kind of the difference between, you know, having surrounding, you know, your main guy with spot-up shooters and that that can make sense in a lot of contexts or surrounding your main guy with a lot of secondary creators. So that like kind of what we're seeing from Boston, where you have a lot of guys who can drive and kick It's not, you know, the spacing is similar, but what the skill sets are very different. I mean, we saw Milwaukee surrounding Giannis mainly with spot up shooters. And we saw Jason Tatum surrounded by a lot of secondary creators. And again, it's not me trying to over theorize these things, just two different models. Well, yeah, and I don't, I don't take it like that at all. I think we saw it so much with Milwaukee, like you just mentioned. Like they really struggled. Like they were just loading up on Giannis because they weren't. They, they were like, okay, either you're going to make the shot, or we're going to run you off the line, and then you're not going to be able to do anything. And I think that's kind of what my concern would be with that lineup. Like, like you just mentioned. I mean, those numbers are jarring. Um, okay, if you if, like, even even if Buddy gets run off the line, his decision making can be a little bit hit or miss sometimes. Like, I think that there are times where he can definitely get in and make the right plays, and we saw a lot of that down the stretch last year. But even then, like, that's your best player making plays, getting run off the line. That isn't Tyrese, and that's um, a little bit like, oh wow, you know, that's that that's a lot. And it, I don't want to say that it's not spacing, but it's kind of like it's geometrical spacing for sure. Yeah. But in a lot of ways, it's like, it's not organic. You know, it's not, it's, it, it feels like a lot of one done actions. Like, okay, once the first drive happens and what's happening after that, like, what is the spacing like after that? And it feels very much like it would, uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't I know think, that I'm feeling positive about that. I mean, I think that there's potential that the driving lanes yeah, um, would be very wide, which is what we saw. Like when we did the, the buddy healed um, recap podcast where I pointed out that like, Hey, Tyrese got a switch against Jaron Jackson rather than attacking that switch. He fired it to buddy adjacent, Buddy was able to get into the paint, made a pass to Dwayne Washington, Jr. Dwayne Washington made the three, like in that type of arrangement and you're playing five out with all of them, you know, it's easier to buy into buddy being able to attack in some of those situations, but you do have several people who are somewhat limited uh, get, like I said, I, I, it's not that Jabari can't get a shot off against the switch or that Miles wouldn't be able to shoot over the top over somebody against the switch. It's just that we've seen Tyrese be very overly selective in those situations and like not want any part of Evan Mobley switching out to him or Jaron Jackson switching out to him or, you know, whoever it may be. And then you also would have two bigs that like aren't exactly known necessarily for their passing feel or for like their low post ability and drawing consistent double teams. So what else is putting the defense into rotation in those situations is the question. And, and do you feel good about it all being on Tyrese to predominantly bend the defense? No. Um, well, I, like that's the kind of thing where like, again, like if you're theorizing it, like, let's say. If- well, cause again, he's, he's made, and it's, a, I totally, I, there's so much that I like about Tyrese. It's not me questioning him as we haven't seen it yet yeah we haven't seen it yet like we said he had like three games where he led the team in shot attempts and it isn't necessarily only about the attempts it's just the amount of pressure it would be on him Mm -hmm. to constantly be bending the defense when and again he mainly um 
relies on his floater. I mean, there would be other combinations you could go to where like in some lineups, you'd be able to have Isaiah Jackson and hopefully he would have some role gravity that would shift defenders to the interior more. But um, because, I mean, we also have to talk about the fact that like when you're watching this current Mavs series and you're seeing the difference between like how much it's mattered that Maxi Kleba has shot the ball the way that he has. I mean, he's practically shooting like, 50% 50% on like what I forget how many attempts, but a decent volume of attempts. And like, that's actually unlocked them to play five out more than what was the case with Kristaps Porzingis. And even with him, you know, bombing and stepping out however many feet and like miles can make threes, but he's been in like the 33% range and only sees, you know, contests on like 30% of his attempts the last two seasons. So in that situation, like if you're just looking at the combination between he and Jabari, like I think, and Miles' sake, based on what he wants, you probably are using, you know, Miles more as the roller, the screener in those situations and spreading Jabari to the corner because Jabari's actually, you know, shot the ball pretty well in the corner for Auburn on very small volume. Whereas, you know, Miles, I think for his career is shooting like 32% from the corners and is much better above the break. So like that arrangement works, but then it's like, how much do you trust miles to make plays out of the middle of the floor? Yeah, no, exactly. Like that would have to be a huge improvement from him. Um, And I'm, I think we're in the same boat. Like, I, I mean, again, that's just kind of like, we haven't seen a ton of it in a way that makes me be like, yeah, let's go all in on that. Um, Cause here, here's again, I have prepared some numbers for the podcast uh, miles potential assists. So kind of famously, as you know, when they were in the first round of the playoffs against the Heat, I think he averaged around 50 touches per game, no Sabonis, and he averaged 0.5 potential assists, which was the fewest of any player in the first round of the playoffs on that volume of touches. So like that wasn't Sabonis like getting all the touches and he just didn't have an opportunity to, you know, pass the ball necessarily. Now that was two seasons ago. And there are some times where like, I think in part, like seeing some of the reads that Sabonis made on like backdoor cuts, we did see miles like thread a few passes in the last two seasons that I don't think we would have seen earlier, earlier in his career. But um, since Sabonis came to the team, here's the change in Miles's assists per 100 possessions with Sabonis. He averaged 1.3 in minutes with Sabonis 1.3 assists per 100 possessions without Sabonis um, 2.5 assists per 100 possessions, which is about like the rate that Justin holiday would have had like Goga's at like 4.9 assists per 100. So, you know, it, it's not like he's going up and doing a lot of playmaking just because, okay, well, they're not funneling everything through Sabonis. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think that with more reps, it's potential. And, you know, I, one thing that they did do that helped Goga in short roll situations when like they're playing a team that deliberately traps the ball, like when they played Minnesota and Boston started trapping Tyrese because Tyrese was like unconscious in that game in mm-hmm. Boston. Um, they always cut the backside corner, which when you do that opens up the reads a little bit easier. Like Goga got pretty good at making that nice, like bounce pass with O'Shea cutting the corner. Mm -hmm. Like it it wasn't automatic that they were going to do that because it really puts a lot of tension on the backside defender to make a choice. And a lot of times like they don't recognize the cut, they'll go with the shooter and it makes it easier. So like, I, I trust Rick Carlisle and company to do things like that, that could maybe make some of those reads easier. And it does help when you have Tyrese who can hit a pull up three because then the area where Miles is making the read becomes more open. And if Miles is hitting shots at a decent rate, he'll be played closer, which again will make those reads easier. But like overall, I haven't seen from year one to year seven, I can't say I've seen much growth in the passing department. Yeah. But it's also because, I mean, somewhat contradictory to what I've said, like, they don't have him do that in part for good reason, but because they haven't had him do that, he hasn't had a lot of reps to work it out either. Like that probably doesn't make a lot of sense, but no, that um, totally makes sense. I get what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, 
he frustrates me at times where, like I said, he he's already determining that he's going to throw it to a specific spot before he's seen it. And where it kind of looks like he stalls out like early on in preseason last year, when they were letting him do some in delay, swapping Sabonis to the corner and letting him do it. And how, um, you know, if the initial DHO wasn't there, it was like, Oh no, you know, what, what do I do? Whereas like, you know, if it's Sabonis, it's like, okay, well, we're going to deliberately run the first guy over it. And now I'm going to go into the next one, or I'm going to change directions and go to the other side, or I'm going to pick it up and keep my, my eyes up. Cause that's part of it too. Like Sabonis did a pretty good job of keeping his eyes up out of those actions and recognizing stuff. Whereas miles is a little bit more focused on his handle in spite of the fact that like, it's kind of like what you said before, like when miles has to dribble side to side, he seems not very confident in his handle by comparison to some of the growth we saw this year in him knifing to the rim if he saw a closeout and attacking north-south. But um, also, like, just with Jabari and Miles, like, what would that mean for Isaiah Jackson? Yeah. No, that's a great question. Because um, we talked about the defensive fit, and I, I, I get that. I like rotating any two of the three of them out there for the most part, but, like, where would Isaiah's minutes come from or where would his path to upward mobility come from? Well, yeah, exactly. Like uh, that, a, that, but also that feels very much so like you're boxing him in as to what he's going to be offensively. Like, right. I mean, we kind of talked about that. Um, I gosh, I can't remember which part we talked about that on, but I mean, does it, it, at least to me, it feels like that a little bit. I mean, I think that in that situation, they would probably be playing I mean depending upon what Jabari would look like in summer league and stuff you'd be playing them and miles together and then be playing Isaiah Jackson staggered with one or the other of them because Isaiah would be doing more in role situations which I mean in part that the fit of that makes sense because so far while I like a lot of the things about Isaiah Jackson I can't readily point to something right now I mean I asked you this question when we did the recap pod of like aside from like role man or receiving lobs out of the dunker spot, like what's something offensively that we can point to as like a play type where he could continue to grow. And we saw him hit a couple threes, but you know, it was, it it still wasn't great. Like, I don't think he's going to be a respectable stretch for in the near term future in terms of how closely he's going to be defended. So like playing him with either, either one of them, like it works. It's just, when you have all of them and two of the players are very young and hopefully continue to improve. And if you were to re-sign miles, I just don't know where his long-term track to a starting spot would be. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and that would be very confusing. Um, and that's kind of the thing. Like if the Pacers do, you know, luck out and get a top pick tomorrow, like that's something to consider because a lot of the players that are pegged at the top of the draft are fours. So. Yeah, <laughs> definitely worth noting. Uh, and I mean, and that is about. an area like they need, the Pacers need a starting four. It's just, again, like we don't necessarily, my general line of thought is that Isaiah Jackson, if miles is back, will be the backup five and they'll continue to get a minutes there. And he might see some swing minutes at the four, but I don't know. But, um, I think that that, well, I mean, I guess I never did mention the fact that, you know, the difference between, I talked about it off rip, but the difference between, you know, Bancaro and, and Jabari in that Miami game and the fact that they weren't, they were trapping the screens with Mark Williams, which allowed Paolo Bancaro to get, you know, the shots out of the second screener and then making a pass on the move, I think is what differentiates the two of these two people the most. And what the Pacers would need to consider if they were to get into that situation of, of who they would select, what they value more. I mean, I don't know that answer to this point. And like, I hope people don't take away from this podcast that I don't think Jabari's a good prospect or that he wouldn't work with the Pacers. Like I can see lots of ways that he would. I think, like I said, I think his skills are translatable. I don't think that you need to worry about it in that sense. It's just, um, you know, if, if how much do you value having a potential number one option over somebody who's going to be more complimentary and potentially schemed out, not schemed out in the sense of being off the floor, but schemed out somewhat against switches where if he isn't really hot, then he's playing off the action with a very high pick, I think is the main question that the Pacers would need to be asking. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Like, I think that it's very much so 
if they are confident in Hallie becoming that guy um, who can consistently collapse defenses and will consistently collapse defenses, then that I think that greatly changes how I view this. Yeah. Um, but I just think you and I are kind of both in the same boat where it's like, I don't know if I'm there yet. Um, but regardless, I mean, I think that's what makes the draft so interesting. Like, and we, I think if I remember correctly, we hear from KP after the draft lottery. Um, yes. So I imagine we won't really get that much more clarity um, just knowing how this team tends to, to ride, but uh, I do we, value we'll hearing see. what he thinks though. Oh yes, for sure. Like, especially cause we haven't heard from him since, since the trade. Yeah. Since the trade. Um, and even then I don't even, he didn't even talk that long. I feel like it was only like 15 or 20 minutes. Um, so it will be interesting. Caitlin, do you have any other uh, closing thoughts on this one? No, Actually, I think that I, we... I do have. Some oh here. yeah. Um, it is worth noting too. Like this is another one of the, uh, and this is more just like some stuff that I'm trying to figure out more as somebody who, who really follows and covers the draft and, and trying to figure that out. Like, how much do you play into to Intel and stuff like that? Like, I think obviously it's an important part, but like, it is like notable, like Jabari is like an insane work ethic guy. Um, like, I feel like we hear that a lot, but um, this is like something that's been reported like for, for a while. Like his dad was an NBA player, uh, Jabari Smith, because he's Jabari Smith Jr. Um, he uh, has been like literally training him since he was a kid, like his like they've they've had to like lock him out of the gym in Auburn uh, at times because he is trying to work out that much like very much so like somebody who has made rapid improvement in his game like uh in talking to people who have covered him since he was you know coming up in grassroots like not that he wasn't a prospect but he wasn't like close to this level of prospect a couple of years ago um like he was not that he wasn't a shooter from outside but he was somebody who was like mostly doing a lot of mid post touches like he still does that a lot but a lot less of what he was doing as a, as a shooter from outside. So he has made a lot of rapid growth in his game. Um, I think a lot's just going to hinge on what do you make of him as a, as a physical uh, in terms of like his uh, athletic ability, like what, what can your training staff get out of that? What can your development staff get out of that? Like, is there, is there more bend in him like that, that you see? Like, and I think that's part of what makes it interesting with him being, I think he's the second youngest player in the draft class, youngest or second youngest. So I think Jalen Duran is actually younger than him because he reclassed. But I mean, AJ um, Griffin won't even turn 19 until a couple months after the draft. Okay, so. I am I'm wrong, man. Uh, he's one of the youngest players in the draft class. But yeah, um, it just it, it does bring up a lot of questions. No, I think uh, that that's a really good thing to bring up because whenever Adam was on the first episode, I brought up a tweet that he had where he was like, you know, I forget what percentage he indicated, but like somebody asked for like draft hot takes and he's like, my hot take is, is that a lot of that development happens after the draft and that it's really important to know the prospect's aptitude for learning. And I think I agree with that. Like, I'm not saying I care about some of the ridiculous questions that get leaked that are asked at the combine. I don't care about that specifically, but actually knowing the people that you're drafting and knowing that type of stuff about Jabari and whether, you know, meeting also with like, you know, if you have biomechanic, people that work for the Pacers and other stuff and having those types of conversations. This is why I personally am not going to tell the Pacers who to draft on any of these podcasts because I'm not privy to what they're seeing at these workouts or being able to actually know what type of person this is. It was my same approach with the, with the coaching profiles. Like I can tell you what Chris Finch runs out on the court and whether I think that it would fit. I don't know him as a person to know if that's going to be good for the Pacers locker room. And in that sense, you just have to, you know, hopefully trust that they do the vetting and, and know that they're going to bring in the right personality in that sense. So um, I think it's good that you brought that up because I value everything holistically. Like I was going to ask PD too, when he watches games, like just even, you know, this is at a very much lower level, but just even growing up in a coaching family and going to opposing teams games, like it wasn't just watching what was happening on the court during the yeah. game. It was also watching the pregame warmups and what players did during those warmups, would they take other shots that they might not normally take in a game? Like, I think that that would matter somewhat at a, at a draft level because some players might be restrained and what they get to do in college. Like, you know, maybe a big and a specific college coach's offense doesn't have the opportunity to shoot, but maybe if you're out there for warmups, you will get to see, Hey, what's that guy's shot look like? And like, I know that it's not a contested shot, but in the sense of like, you're actually getting to see the mechanics of what it looks like that's not something that you see when you just what I did this week, which is just pull up these games and watch them and be able to do this podcast. So 
Um, the Pacers clearly have been doing a lot more work on all of this than I have. <laughs> we hope, uh, but I mean, we, we did put a lot of work into it. So I'm, I'm excited. I think this one turned out great. Um, we will have a lot of stuff coming up uh, after the draft lottery and, and throughout the draft for sure. Um, Caitlin, this was great. Sad Jeff Teague's on the line tomorrow. <laughs> oh, please, please, dear God. Can we, uh, for your sake, I, I would like to see sad Jeff Teague retired, like real Jeff Teague. Um, <laughs> he is retired. He's a scout now, I'm pretty sure. Yes, I think uh, he is. Yeah, that's. I you couldn't have told me that was going to happen five years ago, but we're here now. Um, Al Horford is in the league longer than Jeff Teague. <laughs> How crazy is that? Like, Al uh, Horford outlasted Paul Millsap, Jeff Teague, Kyle Korver. Damari Carroll by and Damari Carroll. Yeah. Al Horford is the last remaining starter from the Space Hawks. <laughs> God, I miss that team. Did you like that team? I yes. love that team. They were so fun. Uh, shout out to uh, shout out to Mike Scott. Mike Scott was so fun on that team too. All right, that is a perfect place to leave off because we have lost our full audience by my first y'all talking about my favorite, one of my favorite teams of all time. Gosh, we'll talk about them more. Um, to everyone listening, thank you for listening, and most importantly. Have a good rest of your day. Regardless of what happens in the lottery, it's going to be a good day. I promise. Talk to you later.